AAVMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air podcast. This podcast is a program of the American Association of Veterinary Medical Colleges Diversity Matters Initiative. The podcast explores various issues related to diversity and inclusion in the veterinary profession and provides the AAVMC an opportunity to offer ongoing diversity programming to our member institutions as well as all veterinary professionals. My name is Dr. Lisa Greenhelm, the Senior Director for Institutional Research and Diversity at the AAVMC. Now, today's show is about conflict resolution and diversity. As we all know, there can be an enormous amount of conflict around diversity issues. Well-meaning discussions can quickly devolve into name-calling, uploaded video snippets to TikTok that go viral, job loss, and all kinds of other kinds of crazy, crazy things. Um, last month, I actually participated in a voice town hall and a student asked me how to handle um, DEI-related conflict um, when it can be so emotionally draining that at points in those kind of conversations, she begins to cry. And I shared that, you know, many years ago, I also had kind of many crying fits in the midst of these types of um, conflictual uh, conversations. Um, but, you know, I think that with time and certainly some additional coaching, mentoring, maturity, and yes, conflict resolution, skill development, I think I'm able to not cry, at least in public. <laughs> I can hold it until I have a private moment. <laughs> and, so, um, and I hope that many others can kind of get to that type of place where they feel more confident um, and secure and have the requisite skills to um, continue to kind of de-escalate, but um, resolve some conflict and move forward. So today's joining me in this conversation are two amazing people. I could chat with them all day, all day long um, about conflict resolution and a bunch of other stuff. So <laughs> Dr. Skanita Roger, former, um, a former associate dean for um, academic affairs at Texas A&M University and my wonderful dear friend, Nance Algert, uh, president of the Center for Change and Conflict Resolution. I'm totally biased. These are two of my favorite people. Um, welcome. Welcome to the show. Oh, thank you. We uh, feel the same way about you. <laughs> All right. So as is our custom on the show, uh, I have my guests tell us a little bit about themselves um, before we really dive into our subject matter. Nance, I'm going to kick it to you first. Mm -hmm. So Nance Salinger, as, as Dr. Greenhill said, I run a uh, small little business in the area of conflict management and I've worked part-time at Texas A&M University for 25 years. Uh, and I'm retiring January 17th, 2022. Not that any of y'all care, but I'm so freaking excited. Uh, I'm beside myself. Uh, I love talking about conflict, conflict resolution, conflict management, because it really could be transformative with reducing the energy we, we use in our day-to-day -day interactions with folks. Awesome. Yeah. Uh, and I'm Kenita Rogers, uh, recently departed from Texas A&M University. I, I retired in July. And at that time, I was executive associate dean and uh, director for diversity and inclusion for the college. And um, conflict resolution actually learned uh, about over the last decade or so. And, and we've inculcated a lot of trainings and things at Texas A&M, as well as Purdue universities, actually, 
uh, done a great deal in, in that area as well. Um, and, and as you both said, it's about lowering the amount of energy we spend on things, having greater conversations, having deeper conversations, um, and communicating in a way that allows us not only to sleep at night, mm-hmm. uh, but also hopefully to make a difference not only to ourselves, but to everybody around us. Great, great, great. So thank you. You started off with the uh, recently departed and I was like, oh my God, no, you're like alive. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Surprise. <laughs> That's right. Um, so why don't we kind of create a baseline? Um, Kanita, can you tell us what exactly is conflict resolution? Mm-hmm. Um, conflict resolution, at least by the definition that we use, is a coming together of of people in in mind and body sometimes in terms of uh, understanding we're going to have differences. Those differences, however, for us as professionals, don't have to damage our relationship. It's how we come back together in relationship and have those conversations. I think Nance may even have a better definition. Oh, I don't think I have a better definition. We use a working definition um, as conflict when we think different, right? different ideas, et cetera. And, and part of our mantra is that, and that we share with folks is conflict simply is. Mm. If we can make that shift on our mental model that it's not, these are good clinical terms, ooky yucky stuff, but rather conflict simply is, and it's how we engage and realize choosing to avoid a conflict is an active decision. It's how we engage this, that constructive or destructive part. Oh, great. And so, you know, I think that, that, no one really seems to like, I mean, no one wants to run towards conflict, um, you know, but certainly there are folks that are more conflict averse um, and then folks that have a higher level of comfort, I guess, or not, you know, it's not always perceived as a negative thing, but should we really try to avoid that conflict? I mean, clearly you say that, you know, that's an active choice um, or can we also kind of flip the mental model to think about conflict as a healthy Thing. Yeah, we, we think engagement and conflict is incredibly healthy. Part of what we tell folks when we spend time with them, now we're not saying run out and create as much conflict as you can, or that any of us have the capacity or the energy to engage in dozens and dozens of conflicts per day. Um, so we think conflict engagement both grows us as individuals, strategic and effective conflict engagement, right? Right. Grows us as individuals and grows our organization in healthy, constructive ways. Looking at some of Dr. Brene Brown's work, it gives us the opportunity to uh, enhance our relationships by building trust. So we, we're all for conflict engagement. And I think, I think uh, if anybody talks about uh, a, a, that they have a terrible work climate or, or a home climate, that they're in almost always the root of that is some source of unanswered conflict or unaddressed mm-hmm. conflict. Uh, and I've heard Nance say many times uh, the reason to address it and to go ahead and get good at addressing it is these little tiny uh, things that we don't think really are conflict, but we go right over and don't address it at its most basal level. The next day is a little bigger and the next week is even bigger. And next month we're going to have a blow up that now looks like, uh, and it's going to require uh, a lot more energy, work, skill, and maybe other people to be brought in when it didn't need that at all in the first place. Yeah, and just adding to that, the longer the conflict festers, the range of options for 
resolving or managing that conflict decreased. Oh, wow. Yeah. So for those of us with control issues, we want all our options for resolution (laughs) versus having a narrow range. Amen to that. I tell my daughter all the time, we just had a conversation earlier today that I um, conceptually think of options as moving me closer to freedom, right? (laughs) So if I don't have any options... I'm, I'm kind of, you know, caged. That's a problem. <laughs> and yes, I'm also a little bit of a control freak, just, just, <laughs> just a little. Um, but yes, lots of options, in, you know, represents opportunity to, to really kind of approach a, a challenge in a number of different ways. Now, my experience in veterinary medicine, and as you know, I've been around for a long time, but I've stepped in and I've stepped out. So I've worked with different communities as well. And one time I am for about four years, I worked for nurses and I found them, um, uh, at least in organized nursing, to have a fairly high level of comfort with um, conflict, um, comparatively speaking, with my wonderful colleagues in veterinary medicine. Um, Veterinary medicine, having been around for a number of years, they do conflict. <laughs> they also try to avoid more conflict than some of the other groups that I've worked with. Um, so, you know, as we kind of dive into how do we kind of con- um, move away from just avoiding um, and recognizing that conflict just is, as you mentioned, um, what are some of those key principles? Like what are, you know, um, uh, those key things um, to conflict resolution that folks just absolutely have to know. If you start. Yeah. So, so a few things. First, going back to that idea that conflict simply is normalizing conflict. Two, realizing that uh, many conflicts can be resolved, more conflicts can be managed than resolved. Mm-hmm. Like budgets, we never have as many personnel or, or the money we want. How do we manage this conflict? Then we think about some basic principles related to conflict and conflict engagement to effectively address conflict. We have to move from our positionality to our our underlying interests and needs. And as many uh, of us have used, you think of the iceberg example, right? Mm -hmm. Often we address conflict positionally, the iceberg you see above the water. And um, that's, that's, a saving face type perspective when we can support folks to move to their underlying uh, interest and need, you know, the, the, the how come uh, you need this compensation, you need the window office, you need to not work on Saturday. Uh, we can get to those interest and needs and, and get resolved. And then everybody needs to understand conflict. Well, I think they do. Conflict frameworks. I mean, conflict's not really nilly. There's a framework. And there's this, uh, specific skill sets mm-hmm. within ourselves and in engaging in conflict with another person that um, increase the likelihood we're successful in working through our different ways of thinking. And I think uh, another uh, piece to it that I think helps people feel comfortable with it is I, I look at conflict management or the skill sets required for conflict management is to be communication skills on steroids. Absolutely. Uh, it is so critical. If you're already a good active listener, you've got a great start. If you already are interested in people and curious and open to learning and can perspective take, you've got a great start. Uh, And so often these are skills, we are teaching veterinary students those skills today uh, to escalate all the way simply active listening as first year students to be able to deal with the angry client when they're fourth year students and beyond. That's conflict. 
uh, and and they are developing the skills to handle that. And they are the exact same skill sets. We need to remember that because we all think we're good communicators, but we get afraid when we think that conflict is something different. And actually, it may be more emotional. It may be more stressful, but it actually is using those communication sets uh, just um, in an expert way. Sure, sure. Yeah. I mean, I think that that active listening thing and, you know, as you were talking, I was also thinking about, you know, anybody who has been to individual and or um, couples therapy, (laughs) (laughs) you know, the active listening, but the the I feel statements, right? Like not like you are a jerk. (laughs) Like, right. but not, I feel <laughs> that you're when you, yeah. when, when you do this, I feel, or that makes me, right? Yes. Uh, right. So the people can hear you. Yes. So part of it is the communication skill sets of, again, in highly char- emotionally charged events, like often conflict is, it's um, making sure the other person knows that you respect them enough uh, that you're going to try to hear them. And therefore, they should. You should use language that hopefully helps them to hear you as well. Yeah, yeah. We very much believe we can engage in conflict. Have strong emotions. Have very different perspectives, and we can be kind. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, in preparation for this episode, um, I stumbled across um, a bunch of content on conflict mm-hmm. literacy, which yes. is um, uh, not. A, a term that I have really heard before, it naturally kind of made sense to me, but 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 I hadn't really heard it framed that way. So what does conflict literacy, and Kanita, I'll give this to you first, yeah. um, what does that have to do with our understanding of conflict generally and um, our kind of individual, uh, often sometimes poor attempts to resolve <laughs> this? Well, uh, to be honest, I am—I was actually so happy you asked that question because it gave me a learning opportunity as well. That is not a—that is not a concept or a piece of language that resonated with me, or I knew what it was. I thought I might know what it was, uh, and so I had to study it a little bit. But again, it still came back to me, uh, or came back as to me about the definitions and understanding of the skill sets and. Uh, way the framing of con it, it really is just a framing of what we need to know, how we can use it, and what frameworks we can use to get better. So I, I found it to be interesting, but I thought it was really just another way of saying uh, how to become a great conflict manager. Here's a list of things that would be really helpful to you. Yeah. Did you have any other comment about that? I, uh, I I don't, but I think something I wish I had said at the beginning of our time, this idea that as adults, we average five conflicts per day. Those of us that have adolescents in our life, personally or professionally, they average nine conflicts per day. And so this idea that if we become skilled enough, we're not going to have conflict in our life um, is, is a myth that we achieve from somewhere. So we've got this really high probability event that if addressed well, we can grow individually, we can grow in our family units and our organizations. So let's figure out how to do it versus adhering to the myth we can eradicate it and then we become non-communicators. I pointed at Kenita non-communicators. <laughs> she talked about 
conflict management is communication on steroids. I wasn't implying that Dr. Rogers sucks at communication. Thank you for that. <laughs> Clarifying statement. Um, well, I was also kind of um, intrigued that that uh, folks with adolescents <clears throat> and or young adults <clears throat> might be living with them. <clears throat> uh, <laughs> My daughter just said, I hear you. Yeah. <laughs> um, that there is only four more average conflicts per day. That's all? Really? Well, you know, that's why right? If somebody else has a, a proportionally higher number than some of us can have fewer, our hope for that average, yeah. <laughs> We'll get back to that. I'm like interested in the <laughs> numbers. <laughs> so, so is formal training the only way to develop conflict resolution skills? I want to say yes, because that's what I do for right. a living. And we've seen it transform people's lives. Uh, but, but, but no, or I guess it depends how we define formal training. So how we engage in conflict today is basically... Um, it is based upon what we observe from our primary caregivers growing up. Unless hmm. at some time in our life we've reflected on becoming more effective communicators or stronger conflict managers. And you can read a book, you can talk to a colleague, you can watch a colleague or a supervisor who's brilliant at defusing and managing high conflict situations or high conflict situations uh, involving diversity, equity, and inclusion. And you're like, I want some of that. And you start talking to them. And then we have folks that attend the hour-long seminar all the way to a 40-hour conflict management and, and, and leadership course. So I don't know if I answered the question or sounded like a politician dancing around it. <laughs> well, I mean, and and also uh, there, there are all kind of little opportunities out there. So again, as you said, videos and, and all that sort of thing, the main thing is wanting is recognizing the need and opening oneself up to say, gosh, that's something that in my life, whether it's my work life, my personal life or whatever, I'm going to be better off if I learn how to do this, how to um, be emotionally intelligent, take a deep breath, uh, self-manage my emotions so that when I do have this interaction with someone, I can do it kindly, I can do it calmly. I can use good body language, you know, and so part of it is just being open to knowing that that's part of growing, I think, as a leader mm -hmm. uh, is being able to, to manage these things and not probably not in a superior way. Every time we all have buttons that get pushed. We all have days. Uh, we all sometimes have buttons that get pushed and today's not the day to manage the conflict. It's you know what? I don't think I can address this with you today. Let's meet tomorrow morning about this when I've had a chance to reflect and calm down, perhaps a little bit. Yeah. Yes, yes. This is why they tell you, like, don't uh, respond to that email, right? <laughs> or, really or draft your email in Word so that you don't hit the send button. Yeah. And, you know, send someone a flying fire dumpster right. email. Yeah, you, you know, you know if your fingers hurt from the vigor that you type that email, maybe not when to send right now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You know, um, one of the best kind of conflict resolution um, pieces of advice, and and it it is um, something that I've certainly used in my personal life, but often in my professional life. Um, uh, the wonderful Pat Lowry told me this many years ago. What does success look like? Right. 
success, not winning, mm-hmm. not winning. Because yeah. um, oftentimes we kind of think of these things through a kind of uh, win lose kind of framework, and that that's never going to work. <laughs> that's not going to work. But really, kind of what does success look like? Which I think also gets to that piece of all right. So what are those motivating factors that we don't see? Um, yeah. How do we use you know um, assuming positive intent? Like this is well intentioned. And I know that you didn't mean it the way that it landed, um, but, you know, I'm trying to give you some grace here. And and that's particularly hard as we get into social justice and DEI work where we have a greater emphasis on impact than intent, right? And so, you know, so kind of thinking about that, social justice work is so fraught with conflict. I mean, you know, for those of us that do um, DEI work or social justice work, we're the folks that are like running towards the conflict (laughs) while other people around the conflict are scattering, right? (laughs) Just turn that light on. Um, So how do, you know, some of these skills help those of us who are working in social justice um, or, or, and, or really kind of have marginalized identities, um, you know, how do these skills really help us kind of cope with this stuff? Yeah. Yeah. So I, I, I think, um, effective conflict management framing and, and skills are just one more tool we, we, we add. And I think I'm basically a lazy person anyway. Mm-hmm. I can minimize the energy I expend. And that's where you're talking about with the DEI work, just, that, that sheer exhaustion, right? When everybody's running this way, you're, you're heading into that uh, fire. Our experience and what folks we have the privilege to support say is, I feel better equipped. So actually I can move with uh, rapidly towards that fire, but I don't sprint with that frenetic whatever. And so I can go in there, stay integrated and connected to myself, assess the situation, decide um, what communication tools I need and be very mindful. And this is a, a key piece of effective conflict management. What's, what's my aspirin goal? Yeah. Because if my goal is I want you to understand uh, close to your language, uh, Lisa, of mm-hmm. maybe not your intent, but this is how it was received, right? Yeah. So if it's that piece I'm trying to accomplish or my end goal is I want to squash you like a bug and let you know, you know, you suck as a person. I mean, how we enter into that, that conflict is very different. And, and when we talk about conflict management, we often act like everything's going to be this rich dialogue. Ideally, it is. And sometimes you say to me, Nance, know it when you're intent. I mean, as you model, you fouled out. And mm-hmm. so there's that psychoeducational piece or there's that assessment or even if, depending upon the dynamics of our relationship, a reprimand that my behavior needs to to change. And I think as we have the frame and the the skill sets, we know we don't just default to one or two ways of engaging Um, because DEI work, low energy, high stress, right? Great intensity with great frequency. And what happens when those, those variables are present is we often default to our primary conflict management styles that may be ineffective for the, the end goal we have. I'd, I'd also go back to you use the example of, of Dr. Lowry and, and her comment, what does success look like? The other piece to this uh, going along with Nancy, you just said is if we 
so we had a tendency to say, gosh, I don't want to get into this conflict today. I'm too tired. I'm, I'm too low in energy. I'm whatever. But the fact of the matter is we can also ask ourselves, what if I don't engage? Yeah. Again, what does tomorrow look like? What does next week look like? And, and as leaders, particularly with those intent versus impact issues, I think it's our job to let people know what their, their impact has been. Yeah. Uh, I have to believe or I try to believe that the vast majority of individuals that we work with in veterinary medicine who, although might be uh, not running toward conflict, want to do the right thing Absolutely. and want to know their impact. And and if we can do that in a kind way that's not shaming, uh, even though it's a conflict, uh, they can be better and then they can be by our side when the next fire flares up again. Yeah. So, yeah. so we also have to take care in how we do it so that we can build our army uh, toward good. Yeah. Yeah. Those are so uh, it's so important. And I think that, you know, yeah, there's just so potentially so much energy that just gets expended, right? And you're Absolutely. trying to to um, demonstrate some grace, but you might be really, really, really pissed off, <laughs> like, right? Well, you might really just, have a lot of that um, that emotion. Yes, Nance. It's just something that I think Purdue has done well. I think uh, Texas A&M with with imperfect, right? We're all imperfect, but working to build a critical number of folks who have worked to hone their conflict management and communication skills. And you'll walk down the halls, you'll be in the hospital, and you will hear people using language and engaging in these difficult dialogues and these conflicts. And and people who have gone through the 40-hour courses, they say, they'll say to their colleague, you you did that class, or you're trying to mediate me, or something (laughs) like that. but again, they just feel more equipped. Yeah. Um, as and, and and people in title leadership spend about two thirds of their day engaged in conflict, and that's one of the things. And, and this is generally speaking, not just in yeah, veterinary yeah. medicine. Yeah. And this is one of the things we typically don't pe- tell people when they move into mm-hmm. a new role. And they're like, "I was going to innovate, and I was going to create, and I don't, I don't do this." Well, you got to do it now. So it sure would be great if we got our folks in title leadership also on the front and realizing this is this is part of your world you're signing on for and we're going to make sure you have the tools uh and the ability to effectively engage in conflict oh thank you so much for that because you know AAVMC we did um uh a study, a couple of studies um, on uh, academic veterinary leaders a, a couple of years ago. And you're right. One of the number one things that they said that they really felt like they needed was more conflict resolution, um, training, skill sets, competencies, all of those types of things, because you're right. They're constantly putting out little squabbles here and big squabbles there. And Oh, right, Kanina? <laughs> Maybe. Well, we, we, will, we will be back at Purdue in February at A&M in April, so people want to just show up and crash the party. <laughs> well, I mean, I mean, that's the thing, right, is, is you also have to practice. That, that's the thing, too, is, is pra- you asked before about formal training, and, and, you know, that can be helpful. But even just practicing the little bits, uh, to because as, again, as title leaders, some of it's going to be great big things that how we handle and and the words we use is going to make such an impact. If we've never practiced how to do it in the small scale, uh, 
most people are not adept at the large scale until they've practiced a little bit. It's like any other, it's like any other thing we attempt to get good at over our lifetime. Um, so it's, it's, uh, and we have plenty of opportunity every day to practice. (laughs) Absolutely. Absolutely. And for folks that aren't in academia, you know, or in clinical practice, I mean, we, you know, we see, we've seen the movement to, um, with these, uh, you know, practice manager positions, office manager positions, those kinds of things that kind of says, okay, we're going to take the veterinarian and step that person out so they can do the thing that they went to school to, that they love, right? Right. Um, And we're going to have someone else who handles, you know, the squabbles, the this, the that, you know, we're going to outsource HR so that we have, you know, um, resources to deal with conflict, but, um, you know, we're not necessarily so reliant on, um, uh, on yes. uh, practitioners to do that work, right? Yeah, and as, yeah, as a matter of fact, what, again, as Nancy said, both A&M and Purdue, what we've done intentionally is have staff, half staff, half faculty. Mm-hmm. You don't have to be entitled leadership to be a great leader. Uh, and and having these skills is important from the top to the bottom, from the bottom to the top, and and all across the board. So the more people that can again help you address and have your organization have a common conflict language, Lisa, you can talk to one another and understand and support one another. The better off you are. Yeah, yeah. So you know, thinking back to that student that asked me um, that question last month during the Voice Town Hall, and you know, and she she really talked about how. She just feels so strongly and then she starts crying and then it's like, oh, I've kind of lost control. Right. So, you know, I, I get that. And I do find that the emotional component um, that's tied up in social justice work is, um, you know, it's a mix of that kind of identity marginalization being felt right um, for those of us with marginalized identities um, and then also feeling a little helpless even with some skills, right? There's kind of like the, we are fighting the same thing over and over <laughs> and over again. And, you know, I've done done workshops with students um, on how to deal with um, certain types of conflict or, um, you know, when someone says something really sideways to you and, and kind of what can you do? And they're like, ah, oh, I like, you know, Dr. Greenhill came back and I tried it, but like I froze in the moment. And I'm like, the blessing and the curse of doing social justice work is you will have another opportunity in 10, 9, <laughs> Like there will be something else stupid for you to have to deal with soon enough. Don't worry, you will get another chance. Yeah. But because it is, because you can count on the reliability of that same type of conflict arising again and again, um, you know, how, what, what do you say about um, the kind of skill building in terms of, frankly, bringing a little bit of peace and solace <laughs> to you while you're doing this work. Mm-hmm. You take that. No, I've got it. It's all work. Okay. Uh, so, so a few thoughts. So, one, all organizations, all units, all groups that you're facilitating, we have a conflict culture. Yeah. Typically, unwritten, unspoken, and one of avoidance. Right. That needs to shift. And so I say that to say conflict engagement, having these dialogues, feeling less like we're standing alone, particularly if we come uh, from marginalized groups, conflict management, effective communication, it, it, it's a community gig, right? 
So we talk about, and I've, I've listened to, to several of your, your podcasts, and, you know, when we have that, that silent bystander, right, that, that needs to shift because we as the N of one can't do all the work. And then the idea of kind of frozen them in the moment, or I was exhausted, or often it's, I was so shocked when I thought I couldn't be shocked by anything more. And it was like, my God, right? You'll have the opportunity again, as you said, but what we tell folks that are intact groups that happen with someone that they deal with, you can go back and revisit the conversation and say, when so-and-so happened, I've been reflecting on that. And I'd like to discuss this further. Do you have some time uh, now or can we schedule a time today or tomorrow? So that's circling back because sometimes we think, and I understand we don't always have that opportunity but we think, oh, I missed it in the moment, right? We were, we find out at 3 a.m. when we wake up, right? If that's what I wanted to say. Sometimes we really can circle back and, and, and have that dialogue. Yeah, I was, I, I'm glad you said that because one of the things I've thought about, we had an example at Texas A&M where there was uh, uh, some very experienced conflict managers titled leadership in a meeting. Someone said something uh, really awful to one of the members and the other two were became silent bystanders in the moment because of shock. They know what to do. They have the authority to do it and to, and just didn't know what to do. And that's one of the reasons people are silent bystanders and just get surprised or you think somebody else can do it. Well, they knew they should do it. So they regrouped in the next day or the next week. They went and had the conversation and, and going back to the emotion that your student was talking about. There's nothing wrong with showing emotion. If we can control enough to talk, if we're sobbing, you know, it's probably we need to wait a moment. But there's nothing wrong with showing a little bit of emotion because that helps um, our shared humanity Hmm. of who we are, that we're human beings, that we hurt, helps the empathy part for the other person, too. Right. So there, there should not be any shame in showing some emotion unless it's uncontrolled anger. Then we probably should wait a bit. Or manipulative. Yeah, we should wait a bit. Right. But there's nothing wrong with a bit of emotion because it shows who we are and shows the other person that it is important to Mm -hmm. us. So I wouldn't give up on showing a little bit of emotion Um, if if we can sort of self-manage that enough to continue a real conversation if we're given the opportunity to do that. Which are great comments for those of us that are feelers first. (laughs) (laughs) Yes. And, you know, it it is okay. I think it's also, I mean, really giving people permission to to say, you know what, I'm going to have to step away for a minute, right? I'm going to have to, I need a moment. And um, because I know for me, uh, for, for folks that know me personally, I come from a family, we are very, we're big feelers. But we also have pretty raging tempers, right? And so, like, I, at least once every day, I'm like, burn it all down! Like, you know, burn it all down! Like, are, are you the having time. one of those moments now, or are you doing all good? I'm all good right now. I'm all good. Yeah, I have one of those moments, like, burn it all down! Um, and, you know, it is, it's, um, and... I've certainly over the years learned how to, you know, put that on the shelf and kind of control that. 
But I also will say, this is what I'm feeling. And this is why I need, like, give me five minutes and let's, you know, take a little break and come back to this. Um, And it's okay to ask for that, you know? So um, earlier I did a wonderful show with a friend and colleague, um, Dr. Jim Brandt um, with AVMA, and we talked about restorative justice. And, um, you know, we talked about how do we help people move past uh, a conflicting incident, right? How do we kind of get that? Um, you know, how do we how do we deal with the conflict and then kind of heal and move on from it? Versus, like, I still remember that time. Like, I'm still okay. So here's a really wild and crazy example. So there, and back way back, a million years ago in first grade, I had chicken pox right before the holiday break. And I had these glue ornaments, these plaster glue ornaments. And because I missed the last day of school, like this guy, this little boy was supposed to bring me my ornaments. And I never got my ornaments. It's an ongoing family joke about how bitter I still am about these dreadful ornaments, right? I still carry it deep in my soul, the like anger. Um, and I know he's out there living his life like, what? <laughs> like, like, like you know, um, but, you know, how do we kind of get past this stuff? How do we get past, um, how do we start healing? Um, and how does conflict resolution play a role in, in you know, getting to restorative yeah. justice? So uh, a couple of things I'll say, and then Nance has, has probably has more expertise on this, but one has to do with the power of story. Mm-hmm. And if we would have a conversation, hear the other person's perspective, listen to their story. If we could do that with an open heart and soul, and it's so hard to do, right? I mean, first grade's a long time ago, girl. <laughs> You're welcome. You should be well past the blue ornaments. I, 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 no, I'm, feeling, I'm feeling your pain. I wrote enough to go looking for blue ornaments. <laughs> so you feelers, all you feelers. Uh, but, but the perspective taking and hearing somebody's story is, I, I don't know how many times when I was associate dean, I would have a faculty member or a student come to me and say something that somebody done to them. And so it's my job to go fix it or figure it out. And I go, listen, and I know what I'm going to do because I've heard this one side. And, and then I go hear the other side. I'm like, oh, <laughs> you know, there is a rational uh, sort of thing here. So number one, if we could listen to story. Uh, but I think the other thing is we have to, and I think many of us are like this. If I am harboring something deep in my soul that is an anger-driven, unkind-driven feeling, it actually hurts me more than it hurts the other person. So that's not saying how to do it necessarily, but it is important for me personally to be able to, it may not be forgive, it may be move past, but I need to understand or try to, for me, it's about understanding the other person, why they behave that way, if I can, if they can articulate it, be willing to have that conversation uh, if if we can set that up, because that that to me is the is the key to it. I need to understand again. Almost most people we know are not trying to be awful, ugly people. They are they want to do well, and and I believe that apology and things like that, given the opportunity for that, can be very helpful to folks. Yeah, apology of a sincere apology. There's really steps to apology versus. If if you felt uncomfortable, um, I'm I'm sorry you felt that way. You know, kind of like. If you got a problem, man, I, I feel for you. I, that's right. But I digress because that's what I do in my side is, is Kenny was sharing and I was thinking about your question. I thought, um, yeah, talk, 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 right? Have, have these dialogues. 
talk about things on the front end too frequently. We engage in dialogue post-event. Mm. I mean, we, we know stuff, and, and, and I'm thinking of different workplace settings where we gather information. We see these repeating themes of conflict areas, yeah, race, power differentials. Um, what a neat idea maybe if we talk about this on the front end versus waiting until we have some big blow up. Yeah. There's this model of conflict escalation, this Glassell's model of conflict escalation. And going back to your earlier comments, when we don't address these conflicts, they escalate to this point that I no longer can see you as a human and you can't see me as a human. And the only way I can win is if I annihilate you. And in fact, if I have to annihilate myself to annihilate you, I won. I mean, it's, it's very Ill, illogical. So talk, 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 talk on the, uh, on the front end. Also, I heard a, a tribal leader speak. And she was talking about when people that, that she leads have a complex life situation, a conflict whether from a hunt, from a war, from an assault. She says, we sit around the fire and they share their story. Mm-hmm. And we will sit around as many fires as we need to, to hear their story. And she was contrasting with a colleague then. She said, and when your people suffer, you throw them a parade to say thank you. And you ask them to remain silent because it makes us uncomfortable for you to share your story. Mm-hmm. And people will say to us, we don't have time to talk and share stories. And our message is you're going to pay in time on the front end or the back end. So you're maybe not gaining time, but you're talking on the front end. You're not having these festering yeah. blue ornament issues <laughs> for a decades later because he had a chance to share. Because that's all about feelings. You saw the ornaments on the tree or whatever your family tradition was. And so what he created didn't happen. And, um, you know, I work as a therapist, too. So if we need to process any of that, that was the call. Also, though, with restorative justice, sometimes we get enthusiastic about conflict management, that it can be the end all be all. We need to make sure we are not re-victimizing the person. And the name of dialogue, restorative justice, and it's worked real well in in the prison system, but also we've seen some really messed up, another good clinical term, situations where we re-victimize the person that was victimized in the name of restorative justice. So Nance, what does that re-victimization kind of look like? Is it, you know, that you're asking folks to continue to tell their trauma story over and over again, you know, that kind of Yeah, or the, the person who victimized so so people have used in the name of the framing of restorative justice um children who have been or preteens uh molested yeah and sitting down with the person who victimized them and um then the young person typically feels a responsibility to resolve this and manage this person's feelings it's like oh my god we we did it again right uh, that's so really you might have a better workplace example, but that's the one I. Um, I don't have I, I don't have one better than that. Obviously, that one is very profound, but uh, it, it comes into play when we think about retaliate uh, retaliatory yeah. actions or things mm-hmm. that could be retaliatory. So we have to 
we have to walk that line, I think, pretty carefully. Yeah. Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I think that, you know, I think that that um, when we're doing when we're dealing with any type of conflict, but especially for me in in terms of um, social justice work or DEI work, um, that piece of retaliation, right, gets back to that. I must win, or I'm going to show you, or I'm trying to correct the power balance, or I'm trying to somehow, you know, manipulate this situation, not necessarily always bad, but just like I am screaming (laughs) in my reaction to this, um, you know, this, this moment, this episode. Um, And it doesn't, I think that we're also living in a time right now where things are moving so fast that a reaction you know, that is not thoughtful um, and deliberate and intentional goes viral. And, you know, next thing you know, you're on, you know, CNN (laughs) (laughs) or like the TikTok video is like now streaming in (laughs) in New York Times, you know, New York. Or simply simply listservs. Yes, we right. simply list uh, with all your colleagues, as you know. So, yeah. so yeah, it's a it's a it's a delicate delicate balance. And again, if we just go back to think about what is kind and what is right and what is just, calmly, uh, and think twice before we post things or think twice before we write in capital letters everything or or whatever. <laughs> yes. You know? yes. Everything we're talking about, the, the premise of being an effective conflict manager is that we have the ability to engage, be self-aware and engage in self-reflection. Mm-hmm. And many, the majority of us can do that, and some of us cannot. And so the different ideas that we're talking about on your podcast, um, it's going to look different for, for us yeah. if we're an individual yeah. who, who doesn't have that capacity because of life experiences, hardwiring, yeah. whatever the case may be. Yeah, yeah. I, I thank you so much for bringing that up too, because for, for those of us who are um, maybe neurodivergent or have trauma backgrounds or whatever it is, which, you know, um, it, it, it's going to look different, right? The, the, it's going to look a little bit different. So as, as yes, go ahead, please. Oh, and and uh, I, I mean, I think we need to reemphasize that point. We assume that what we think is what the other person is thinking. Yeah. But again, it is about the story. It is about these divergent views. It's about these backgrounds that we know nothing about and not make the assumptions that Lisa said this because she's a black woman. Yeah. She may have said it because she's a black woman, but it may also be a black woman with other experiences. Right. That's what brought her to this place, that intersectionality. And so we need yeah. to remember yeah. and not make assumptions about people, too. And that is super hard because that's what we all do naturally. Yeah, yeah. And so much communication is nonverbal, right? And yeah, in this right. time and age, okay, so yes, we have Zoom and all of these little tools. But, I mean, you know, we're still on, um, you know, social media where we're trading messages and it's asynchronous or emails are also asynchronous. I mean, I received an email recently and I was like, we are going to go walk to the kitchen (laughs) for a little while. And we're going to kind of think about this and, and really, you know, and kind of thinking both about the conflict resolution piece and the restorative justice piece, I was like, this person is inherently a good person. This person is probably trying to meet me where I am, <laughs> hopefully. And <laughs> like, you know, but 
then I kind of said, all right, you know what? Let me read my messages again to see what I thought I communicated and right. what I did. Right. Right. Like what, what unspoken assumptions, what unspoken knowledge, what unspoken, yeah. you know, um, yeah. tidbits um, I thought should yeah. be reflected because this is just, it just is right. <laughs> um, and then um, that that person, you know, on the other end of that email probably thought very much the same thing. And, and so, you know, um, good news is I was like, you know, I think that we're having a little miscommunication. Um, maybe we should get on the phone. Maybe we should chit chat a little bit more. Um, I'm not going to leave it this time because there are times when I would just like click and, and just, you know, kind of move on. Right. And so, um, as we, as we wrap up, um, what advice may, may I interrupt? Oh, yes, please. So what you said was just critically important, and we didn't touch upon that idea of framing conflicts, because if we don't check for understanding where this person's coming from and communicate where we are, 90% of these unresolved conflicts is you believe, and, and there's different ways to, to organize conflicts, you're coming here, I'm coming here, and so all I can decide is you're an idiot and vice versa, instead of, oh, you thought you were coming from here, I was coming how can we come here and have that dialogue? So it was just, I just didn't want to miss yeah. that. that no, point, it that's so, so typical in yeah. type of miscommunication. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think that, you know, I think it is, it's probably, it, it seems and feels very common. Right. Mm -hmm. And yeah. so um, for me, I, I've, I've, hopefully become far more direct in my own communication because again like nobody's a mind reader okay there's apparently some mind readers but nobody's like <laughs> i've not yet met any not mind readers in veterinary medicine i'm not suggesting that there aren't anybody out, no <laughs> readers out there so don't like you know again head to twitter and be like nobody's at, like Dr. <laughs> there's no, um mind readers and um but you know i really think that then at that point for me, I really have to say, I'm going to take responsibility and see what is it that I thought I was communicating that I probably missed the mark. Um, right. And that, that as much as I would love to, you know, say, oh, see, this is, this is, you know, par for the course when I engaged, you know, blah, blah, blah. Um, but then it takes on, my, I take that responsibility um, and say, okay, like, what can I do different? How can I actually say this differently? That really kind of gets at what it is that um, I'm trying to communicate because apparently first time around didn't work. <laughs> it didn't work. <laughs> Um, so as we, like I said, as we get kind of wrap up, what advice um, would uh, both of you, Kamita and Nance, give to veterinary educators um, and then practitioners about managing conflict? Um, well, I would just start with, again, as Nance says, conflict simply is, no, we're going to have them. And it's it's a skill set we need to get just as good at as, as uh, surgery and other types of communicative uh, uh, topics. So that's the first thing. The second thing is I always say default to kindness. And, and part of what you just talked about really is defaulting to kindness, which is not making the assumption that the other person understood uh, and was really arguing with us. Um, I think certainly being open to practicing over time um, and understanding that, again, everybody is a human. 
and seeing them as a human who have life experiences and things that may be very similar to ours if we just we just have a conversation. But taking a deep breath and then being okay to engage. Yeah, yeah. yeah I have nothing to add. Uh, simply emphasizing what Kanita said of, of these these are essential skills. So when people say, I don't do the touchy-feely stuff or I don't have time for these soft skills, doesn't matter how great a clinician you are or whatever your roles are, if you don't have these essential skills, um, you will be less effective or you will spend uh, more energy that then sucks us dry, our physical health and our psychological health. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's it's just so important. And I think that, you know, for the profession and, and the issues around wellness, well-being that, that we're all grappling with. And, you know, a lot of times it is, you know, please be nice to us. Absolutely. We want people to be kind as, as you both mentioned. Um, but, you know, this kind of increasing conflict and friction between kind of the public and the profession in terms of practice. Yeah. I think that um, I think that we all could probably stand to improve our conflict resolution um, and communication skills because if clients are resorting to doing wild and crazy things, now some of them there's going to be a percentage that they probably would have just done wild and crazy things anyway, right? Um, like there, there, there's always going to be that percentage, but it really is kind of what what as a profession can and should we be doing different in our interactions that um, might result in different conflict? Because we're not going to be able to get rid of all of it, right? But at least tamp down on this type of conflict. Right? Right. And, and not spend so much time and energy and have so much stress recognizing that a conflict is coming up. Yeah. Uh, just being able, again, to breathe and say, okay, I've got this. Just like a surgery turns out to be more difficult than we thought it was, we got this because we're well-trained. We know what we're doing. Uh, same thing with conflict or other types of communication. You got this. Yeah, yeah. And we can't do it alone. Consult. You do it alone. Yeah. yeah, yeah. We all want a positive outcome, right? Yeah. It might look a little different, but we all want a positive outcome. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Wow. Such a great conversation. Thank you so, so much. Uh, Nita, Nance, very welcome. Day. Yes. Yeah. So we'll be, you know, um, yeah, we might have to do another another part, a part two for 10. Um, <laughs> we're always here for you, friend. It's great because, again, we thought we were going for four hours. Wonderful. Well, uh, this has been another episode of AABMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air. To my guests, Nance and Kanita, thank you so much for joining me this afternoon. Be sure to subscribe to the show on your favorite podcast app and be sure to also like us on Facebook at AABMC's Diversity and Inclusion on Air. And uh, we will see you soon. And we are going to be having just a few more episodes for 2021. And then we are going to take a much needed break and be back in the new year. So thank you.